People are looking for solutions that work for people and make a difference right now. No more rhetoric, action. Welcome back to Cabot Talks. This is Brian Cabotet, former president of Consumer Attorneys of California, president of LA County Bar, and generally a left-leaning political person in California politics, at least on the fringe for most of my adult life. And I'm joined, of course, by my co-host, my little brother, less funny, much taller, much slender, probably in better shape at this point in his life, John. This is John Cabotet. Yes, Brian is correct about all those things. I still have more terrible bad jokes than my brother. I wear that with a badge of honor. I'm John Cavatech, the California State Director of the National Federation of Independent Business. I'm also the president of Cavatech Strategies, working with small business owners. And we're just really excited today about our very special guest. We're really thrilled today. And what a treat to welcome a very good friend to both the, the brothers Cavatech, Assemblymember Chris Holden. Chris Holden has dedicated his whole adult life to public service and business. And we, we're certain he got this DNA from his father, Nate, who served on the L.A. City Council for many years, very respected public servant in his family as well. Nate Evangelino, after graduating from college, Chris Holden turned down an offer to play professional international basketball. Just pursue, like me. Just like you, Brian. Yep. <laughs> yep. yep. You had that height issue as well. To pursue public service. He went straight into it. He was first elected and served for 24 years. Wow. As Pasadena City Council member and mayor the youngest person elected to the council at the age of 28, and the second African-American to ever serve on the council. While he was on the council, he served as the president and a commissioner to the Burbank-Glendale-Pasadena Airport Authority, as well as on other boards and committees. And then in 2012, he thought, look into Sacramento. He was elected to the state assembly and was reelected, get this, four times to serve his constituents in Pasadena, including Brian and the surrounding San Gabriel Valley community where he still serves. During this time in the assembly, he has championed incredibly important causes to make California communities better, including hallmark legislation on education, business, economic growth, public health, persons with disabilities, social and racial justice, public safety, the environment. Chris, I'm sure the list goes on. But he, he currently serves as chairman of the very influential Assembly Appropriations Committee and as a member of the Assembly Communications and Conveyance Committee, Environmental Safety and Judicial Committees. He's Definitely got business expertise, which is wonderful. And we've seen that it demonstrated he's the owner of a real estate consulting firm in Southern California, but also the former owner of a Subway franchise. Brian and I are craving some uh, turkey sandwich. Just wanted to see if we could cut us in here. <laughs> and he's a graduate of San Diego State University, lives in Pasadena with his wife, Melanie, and they have five children. Welcome to Cabot Talks, Assemblyman well, thank you so much. With that kind of an introduction, I will say, hey, man, it was good to see you guys, and we'll dial in next time. We're very happy to have Chris. I've known Chris since before he got elected, and I can say that of all the members of the state legislature, all the elected officials I've met in California, Chris is the most honorable, most decent, most all-around wonderful human person. I've never heard him say a bad thing about anybody, and I have a great deal of respect for him, and I'm a constituent. Yes, you are. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you know, first of all, you guys are wonderful. I'm glad to be here. I feel like I'm with family. Great to have you with us. I was talking to somebody earlier today, Assemblyman, and basically they said, you know, I don't think I've even ever heard Chris Holden say the word darn. So, uh, <laughs> so, oh. so for FCC purposes, we're feeling very safe here today. But, uh, John, we're not we're, governed by the FBI. I keep telling you that we're not governed by the FCC. 
What? This is, yeah, none of our 12 listeners have ever complained. Thank God. (laughs) So, Chris, we're recording this here really at the end of October of 2022. We've got another election coming up. I'm certainly confident that you'll be reelected. And that'll be your sixth and final term as a member of the state assembly, right? That will be the, the final term, termed out in 2024. It's amazing how fast the time has gone by. It just seems like yesterday it was 2012 and I was getting a call from John Perez and he was asking me what lane I thought I might want to enter the assembly in, whether it's in terms of chairing a committee or, or floor leadership. I indicated to him that, you know, I'm kind of a generalist, so maybe working on the floor might be fun and give me an opportunity to build relationships with the other members of the assembly. And so he made me, as a freshman, the majority whip. So you learn how to count votes very quickly when you're the majority whip. Had an opportunity to elevate to majority leader, uh, then under Tony Atkins, and then under Anthony Rendon, he appointed me to chair utility and energy and now appropriation. So it's been an opportunity to serve in some very important positions and get some good things done. So I'm appreciative to all the speakers that I've had a chance to serve with and uh, give me an opportunity to get some things done for my communities. Chris, I've never really asked you this before, but what led you into politics and leadership, you know, going all the way back to your first time when you decided to run for office in Pasadena and then what caused you to run in for the state assembly? You know, that's a good question, Brian. You know, for, for many, it would be, the thought would be that my dad had a tremendous influence in terms of encouraging me to run for office, but he did not. When I finished at San Diego State, I came home. I was still trying to figure out what I was going to do next with my degree in marketing, business marketing. And I obviously then chose something completely outside of that. I took a job working for the probation department in Juvenile Hall in East Los Angeles. I had the night shift. I worked from 10 at night to 6 in the morning. And, you know, the the thing that really created the awakening for me was seeing so many young people coming through that facility who had some created, had been involved in minor offenses and some in some very major felonies. And I always thought, what's happening out there in the world that's causing them to get on this track? Happened to read in the Star News at that time that my council person, who at that time they were called border city directors, was not going to run again, Loretta Glickman. And I went to her told her I was interested in running. She told me what to do, go knock on as many doors as I can. I let my dad know. And the thing that came out of the first thing that came out of his mouth was, are you crazy? (laughs) 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 And I I will say that for my brother and I, once I made the connection, it wasn't so much politics. It wasn't like I was looking at what he was doing and saying, I want to be like that because it's politics. I want to do something that was more in the lane of described as public service. And what does that look like and how can I be have the most impact? And that's actually what caused me to get connected. You know, he came back around and supported my efforts. And, you know, 24 years, the first time around, I did not win because when sort of the powers that be, I referred to them affectionately as the gatekeepers, said, well, you know, this 23, 24 year old, you know, we know who his dad is. We know he used to play basketball and attend high school here. But, you know, we just don't know his, the fullness of his politics. So they talked Loretta into running. And back in those days, 
the compensation for serving on the city council, $50 a meeting. So pained her, but she won. And so I stayed active and engaged. I didn't want to be that guy who disappeared and served on Light Rail Alignment Task Force, which rolled forward 30 years. I'm still working on everything gold line. So it's interesting how you kind of get those, your feet planted on issues and make you see yourself being a part of a larger community and making a difference. And I'm hooked on public service. See, Chris, I want to let my brother have a chance here in a second. But one thing that piques my interest is you're talking about your service in Juvenile Hall and a debate that my brother and I have not so much a debate, but a discussion we've had consistently is the crime problem in California, right? And mm-hmm. one of the things I've said is crime tends to be a young man's or a young person's game. It tends to be something that involves a lack of maturity and a lack of education and responsibility. And that oftentimes people who, you know, commit a particularly smaller crimes or, or minor crimes, whatever that might be, mm-hmm. um, grow out of it. You know, they, they, they just grow out, unless they're sort of trapped in the system or they're trapped in a, in a family situation or a neighborhood situation that they can't get out of. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious what your, your perspective is on that. You know, I, I think that for, for a lot of people, whether they find themselves on the wrong side of law enforcement at some stage of their life, that you have to have someone who can be a mentor, someone who can present themselves to you and show you an alternative way of engaging in society, thinking beyond one's neighborhood, understanding that through education, a lot of doors can open. And I've noticed that whether an individual comes from a good family or one that is in the foster care system, it's we're we're kind of blessed nowadays that, you know, our kids don't get off on the wrong track because they meet the wrong people. And we try to create an environment where they can have a model to understand how to structure their life going forward. But a lot of young people don't have that. And, you know, sometimes it was the teacher and that took a special interest in caring. If they had some type of athletic skill and they had a coach who could mentor and pour into their life, someone from the faith community who came upon them and was able to guide them. So it's a lot of different ways that it can happen. But I do think that having someone who can give you an alternative way of thinking, processing the world around you, and instilling hope, the expectation that your life has meaning and value, and believing in a person. And sometimes that's all it really takes. I'm kind of curious also what your thoughts are on that issue in terms of accountability. I think there's no question, even, you know, we, NFIB and the retailers and others, we've been meeting, in fact, we've been meeting this week with the attorney general's team and others about, you know, certainly prevention. You know, we talked yeah. to Reginald Jones Sawyer, the chair of the public safety committee in, in the yeah. assembly. Prevention and diversion, very important, but people are still feeling very un you know, unnerved and concerned and not protected. I mean, what are your thoughts in terms of that accountability side of it as well? I mean, it's got, these people have got to be held accountable. Without a doubt. You know, look, I think that, you know, I think what we've been doing here in the last couple of years is rethinking law enforcement in the sense that we cannot operate as a society without having the men and women who have sworn to take an oath to protect and serve community. And the value of law enforcement is second to none, being a teacher and maybe being in law enforcement, two of the more demanding and tough jobs out there. But, but clearly, you know, as, as far as what are the fullness of the role that law enforcement can play, I think there's sort of a rethinking of whether or not there are social 
professionals who can can maybe meet a moment that doesn't require sort of a law enforcement, more heavy-handed approach in dealing with an individual as they encounter them in their situation. But to say that that, that law enforcement's role is minimized to where they can't do their job effectively, that that is not true. But I think that there is an opportunity as we start thinking about how we move forward and, and sort of broaden the view of meeting community needs and meeting people, whether they're from a homeless community or they happen to fall into a situation where as a, as a youth offender, they can be met a little bit differently. I think those are certainly conversation points that should continue with the professionals so that we can make sure that we're make, meeting people's needs where they are. But let me just be clear. There's some really bad people out there and they do not hesitate to inflict bodily harm and injury on anyone who may get in their way as they're trying to make their way along the, uh, you know, to whatever it is that they may be doing. So that's my best shot at it. You know, I think John's point about, you know, making sure that we met out punishment and accountability where it's necessary is is fine. I I don't have a problem with that. But I also think we have to look at it though, sort of holistically at what's going on in society and, you know, pre-kindergarten education, working in the communities, trying to find people who are at risk or even who have done something, you know, bad, but not, you know, not to the level where we, we look like their lives should be thrown away for it. And, right. and trying to find solutions there are just as important as John's word accountability. Yeah. Well, yeah, no, I think that that's what you'll find as you look at the the state budget, you know, in terms of making sure that we're putting more money into infrastructure, more money into education, trying to find ways to to fill the achievement gap where so many who are of minority backgrounds, black and brown young people seem to be finding their way, falling through that gap. And if they're not presented with opportunities on the front end, and it's not enough just to start schooling at kindergarten, you have to really start at the pre-K level. And we've been investing more money into pre-K, trying to support opportunities to address the achievement gap for those who are most impacted, putting resources there so that they can be caught early and be given all the opportunities that that can be afforded. But no, I I don't agree. I I mean, I don't disagree. I think that it's it's a combination of both the front end preventative and how you can catch a young person before they get labeled as someone who is a disruptor and who doesn't seem to be able to be on the track to be on the track to college. And so we want to make sure that we're giving all of those young people an opportunity to have that kind of success for their life. Let's pivot a little bit to the elections. You know, at the time of this Cabot talk, we are getting towards the end of October 2022. We're less than two weeks until Election Day. We'd love to know your thoughts and, and any predictions you have about the California elections. My Republican friends, Chris, tell me it's going to be a Republican sweep in California. But they also wrong told they also told me the sky is orange and full of unicorns. But but tell me, maybe you have some thoughts. What what are some of those key issues? Let's start with that. We were just talking about issues. What are some of those key issues that you think are driving voters to the polls this year and, and this whole cycle? Well, I mean, we talked a little bit about it, safety. I think that uh, the issue of homelessness has risen to the level where people, it's always been there, but now it's showing itself in encampments in more suburban communities. And I think that's really magnifying the problem even more so, or at least creating greater awareness. 
So I think that that's what is part of what's driving it. I, you know, it's probably the best way to evaluate kind of the issues and, and how they're playing out is when you watch the, the mayor's race in Los Angeles. Those debates have sort of covered the spectrum in terms of addressing education, addressing homelessness. And some of them are very vexing. They're not sort of an easy solution. And when you hear, it can't be soundbited into like, this is how, what's going to happen. I'm going to build, you know, 300,000 houses in 30 days or 300 days. If that were so easy to do, it would have been done by now. So there, there are limitations. There's obviously tensions in communities in terms of race relations. I mean, I think we saw that play out in, again in Los Angeles in terms of the council members and their, their comments that were caught on recording. And I mean, I just think that, I, I don't know, it just seems like there's a heaviness that, that kind of is out there. People are frustrated. They want to see solutions to some of these longstanding issues. And in an election, when you have everyone trying to say, but this is what I'm going to do. And then someone's trying to one up them and no, but here's what I'm going to do. And this is how it's going to be most effective in your way. Is it, It's kind of the same type of thing we hear. I mean, I think generally you have to judge the tree by the fruit that it bears. And, you know, I think you can see in a person's life that when no one was watching, they were laboring away in a certain way to try to make a difference and try to really bring people together. And I think that that's to the extent we can drill down on that and we can probably better gauge the candidates and see just how truthful they are based on the kind of work they've already done. Those are the kinds of issues that I see out there building affordable housing, Mm -hmm. transportation. I know here in the San Gabriel Valley, we're still pushing really hard to see the gold line completed from Pomona to Claremont and then on to Montclair with hopefully at some point in the the future of connecting it to the Ontario airport. That coupled with a strategy that I put out that is studying the feasibility of connecting gold line to the Burbank airport. So with the theory being that you can have clean, efficient rail system that connects two international, two airports is intermodal connectivity at its, at its finest. And it's also the way to get traffic congestion off of the freeways and, and streets. And so those are the kinds of things that are out there. People are looking for solutions that work for people and make a difference right now. No more rhetoric, action. Well, I think that's a good way to also talk about the Republican Party, which is seems to me to be diminishing in relevance in California. Sorry, John. I don't think so, Brian. No, we're coming back. And I'm telling you, there's a lot more people, I think, who are at least moving in the direction of purple. So you just watch. You just watch it, buddy. Well, yeah, right. Well, I, I think, you know, I think they're also moving in the direction of Idaho. Yes, well, that's for sure. Well, there's another, that's a whole separate discussion with Chris. If you were advising the Republican Party and how to be relevant in California, put you on the spot here, but what, 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 would, what would you do besides, you know, my advice to them would be buy a 68 Ford Fairlane, pack it up with your belongings and head east. But Well, because, because of the failed policies in California and, and in the oh. West, but that's okay. Except with the exception of Chris Holden. (laughs) Well, you know, look, I think that California has, I mean, once upon a time, it was 
you know, it, it elected Ronald Reagan governor. So, I mean, there's been an evolution of a movement. And it wasn't that long ago they elected Pete Wilson governor. And then they elected Pete Wilson. They, they elected Arnold Schwarzenegger, although his party politics are dubious these days. I don't think there's a member of the Republican Party nationally that would welcome him. But, yeah, you know, it hasn't been that long, right? It hasn't been that long. And so I think that there's always moments in time where you yeah. just can't shut off debate around other points of view. You have to try to figure it out. How do you how do you kind of integrate some of those thoughts as best you can? I don't know if I've seen anything other than wildfire mitigation efforts and work that we've been doing around protecting our utilities and and sort of protecting communities from these devastating wildfires and developmental disability related issues that bring unanimous support or close to it on on legislation because it's being viewed as this is good for the people of California, no matter where they live, because there's vulnerability throughout the state when your utilities have the potential of being destabilized and throwing the markets off to where the investor-owned utilities can't compete and they have to shut down. We saw one major utility in bankruptcy, PG&E, because of liability-related issues to wildfire and vulnerability under those circumstances. And the impact that that was having on the devastation that was having on families and whether they were Democrats or Republicans or declined the states, the families in paradise and other communities that were impacted most specifically by utility caused fire, they're looking for, they're looking for answers. And I think we've been able to, to address those in a, in a meaningful way and with bipartisan support. So we can get there. There are those moments and opportunity where we can really focus on a greater, the need being so great and, and pervasive around the state and impacting on so many people that we can find ways of, of, of getting to common ground. And I will say an underutilized tool that we should do more of is conference committees. Conference committees give the legislature an opportunity to be, be bipartisan in its formation as well as bicameral where the assembly and the Senate has representatives on a, a committee that's singularly focused on a particular issue. And maybe the, the issue of gas prices and the special session and price gouging that the governor looks to initiate in December, maybe what we ultimately do is have a conference committee that could be formed because it worked very well back when Jerry Brown was governor and I was chairing the 901 conference committee to address the issue of vegetation management, wildfire mitigations and issues of that nature. So I've seen it work. I wish we had done that this year when we were uh, dropped the issue of Diablo Canyon in our lap at the 11th hour. I think that would have helped us get mm -hmm. to a more inclusive solution earlier in the process. You mind if we shift a little bit to legislation, a couple of bills and things that, that do I mind? you're asking me if I care, John, Brian, don't, Speak up. I'm going to have mom at a conference committee for both of us. <laughs> there you go. going to pull us in. One bill I just want to kind of hit directly, if you don't mind, without putting you on the spot, is AB yeah. 257. This is that. I know that legislation that was originally introduced by a former assembly member, Lorena Gonzalez, the fast yes. food franchise bill. I think really yes. this, this panel of various participants to, I think, determine the wages, benefits, and other circumstances of specific to the fast food franchise industry. 
Correct. You having been in that space, I'm kind of curious, there's obviously a lot of folks in the business community, and I won't lie, the small business folks and others that really feel this could be the camel's nose under the tent, this, that this mm. is going to be something that could seep out to a lot of other industries. Is this, do the, does the business community have some reason to be concerned about it? What are your thoughts about it? Why, what, why do you think it's a good idea? Wait a minute, Chris. What do you mean camel's nose under the tent, John? I know what that phrase means. I'm not stupid like you think I am. But well, what, do you, what do you mean? Honestly, I think a lot of people really feel that if this is going to start with the fast food industry and franchise industry, could this go further? Could this then ultimately be replicated with retailers, manufacturers, auto service community? You know, a lot of folks out there wonder, as we see historically in some other ways, this could act, could this ripple out to other sectors or industries? And is this going to be a good thing? Is this going to be a good thing? I think a lot of folks are concerned that this is going to have some implications on the entrepreneur. But I mean, the government already regulates employment and employment in, in, in lots of different ways. So, you know, there's minimum wages, there's standards, there's minimum hours, minimum hours a day, minimum hours or maximum hours a day, maximum hour. Right? So anyway, I, I don't mean to interrupt you, Chris, but I'm just trying to flush out what my brother's concern is. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, before there were labor organizations advocating on behalf of the workers, then to your earlier, to your point, you had child labor laws that needed to be put in place. You had people who were having wage theft issues associated with it. There was no recognition of safety in the work environment. And I think this bill came about because I think it was it was always there, the issues that workers in fast food sector were experiencing in terms of wage theft, in terms of unsafe environment, work environment. But it kind of came to the to the head as a result of the pandemic, because then you start to get a lot of people concerned because they're coming into work. They're not being provided with all the ample uh, safety equipment that they needed and they're essential workers. And they're engaging with the public at a time where we're still trying to figure out what does COVID-19 really mean and how impactful is this going to be on our society? It was also uh, evident in the, the grocery store realm as a sector as well. And a lot of protections were put in place for those workers. And I think that it was just really kind of a culmination of we have to do something that allows for uh, standards in the workplace for these low-wage workers to be a part of a conversation that looks at establishing standards of equity and fairness in the workplace in which they have to survive. These were jobs in the past that were jobs that high school or college students would take and and probably still do to some degree. But now you have folks who are taking these jobs that have to pay rent. They have to take care of their families. There's, they have, they cannot not do a job like this. And so we're trying to find ways that would pre- allow them to have a seat at the table, to be part of a conversation. Having been a franchisee of a Subway restaurant before, I would not have any problems with it. I look at, I look at laws like this or movements in this direction saying, okay, if I'm doing something bad, I have something to be worried about. If I'm not treating my workers right, I need something to be concerned about. But if I am, then I'm not going to be uncomfortable with making sure that standards are in place that protect workers who may be environments who are who are not. And with to the earlier part of the conversation, when Lorena Gonzalez took her position to be head of labor fed for the state, the speaker asked me to chair appropriations. And then the next thing you know, 257 was a bill I was asked to carry. And I think we 
were engaging. Uh, we brought parties together. When the business community said, you know, we don't want the subpoena power in the bill, we negotiated it out. When the business community said that they did not want to see joint liability in the bill, we negotiated that out. These were pivotal pieces of the legislation that were taken out. So the expectation is that there would be movement, collaborative movement, to try to find a way to show that we're easing the burden, we're addressing and recognizing that transition needs to happen in a way that is as fair and equitable as possible. We beefed up the role of the legislature so that there was that backstop. The chair of the committee uh, will be a representative from the Department of Industrial Relations. So really nothing actually even gets out of the committee without there being some sense of, uh, of consensus. But even having done that, then the business community has basically said, and I'm not going to say California, because I think California business and chamber recognized the kind of work we did to make it a fair bill. But now it's getting hit by outside interests that are coming in and putting forth a referendum to just basically undo everything that we did. And that's unfortunate. But I think that, you know, we took in all points of views. And I think it was fair. We didn't dig our heels in and say no to some important things that obviously were ne needed to have in there, but we yielded to the business community's concerns. And we'll see how it plays out, both the referendum and the law, right? I mean, I think I personally believe there's enough of Brian's compadres in the legal community that could sue businesses top to bottom. So, but we'll see how that one plays out. And well, yeah, so, I mean, you know, and if they deserve it, right? There's, they deserve it. We yeah, have a no. division. We have a division that holds them accountable, Brian, and DIR and DLSE. But oh yeah, and anyway, they're very, very, they absolutely, very, they're hugely anyway, staffed. They I'm have calling. a lot of staff people, and they're doing. They have, time, well, yeah. Thank you very much for that. I, I'm calling mom right now, Chris. Sorry, can you kind of put you guys on hold? <laughs> All right, let's, um, hey, let's have some fun. Us, let's have, have a little some fun. Let's we have, have some fun, Chris. We're going to ask you some rapid fire questions. There's no wrong answer, so yes. don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. That's our whole point here. Okay. And we get to ask you a couple of, each of us get to ask you a few quick questions just so that our 11 or 12 listeners get to know you a little bit better. John, you get to go first. 13 listeners. All right, Chris, your first concert, first concert you ever went to. Oh, Grover Washington at San Diego State. Grover Washington Jr. Waited Sax all the time player. until college to go to a concert? Well, you know, I love sheltered, sheltered life. Sheltered life. <laughs> sheltered life. Favorite movie? What can I say? I'm a James Bond fan, although I like the Godfather one. Can't go wrong with that one favorite James Bond film then? Sorry, John. Oh, yeah. No, that's good. Well, it's a Roger, any Roger Craig movie, any Roger Craig, James Bond. It used to be Sean Connery, but now, you know, those are two of my favorites. So anything in Daniel those. Craig. Just Daniel not Craig. to correct oh, Roger, not, not to correct, not, Roger. A, not to correct a sitting elected. Or Roger Moore. Or Roger Moore. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. No, not. Yeah. Daniel Craig. Thank you. Favorite comfort food. Oh, mm, something savory. Lasagna. Favorite restaurant in Pasadena. There's one that's going to make you popular with your constituents. <laughs> they all are. <laughs> <laughs> you win. That's beautiful. <laughs> Favorite movie star. Wow. Roger Craig again? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, 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 I like Denzel Washington. I like Tom Cruise because they kind of have that charisma on the screen thing going. So between those two. If you were a cartoon character, who would you be? Bugs Bunny. What was a one morsel of wisdom your father gave you as you were entering politics? It's not where you don't. <laughs> don't do it. Run. Run in the right. other direction. Right. 
It's not where you serve, it's how you serve. Favorite sports team? It would have been the Lakers. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I grew up with the Lakers. I, you know, I guess true fans never leave their team even when they're when they're struggling. And I guess I have to continue to say the Lakers because they're they're struggling. But the history growing up with, you know, the Jerry West, Happy Harrison era and all those guys and Elgin Baylor. Yeah, it's kind of hard to to make an alignment with someone else. Favorite Laker of all time? Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Place in the world you'd like to travel that you have never been to? Greece and South Africa. Hey, Chris, you've been great. We could keep doing this all afternoon. Thank you very much. Our, our guest today has been Chris Holden, member of the State Assembly, going into his sixth and final term. A great public servant, wonderful person, person that you can go to Sacramento and can't hear a bad thing said about. So grateful to have you on today, Chris. Thank you so much. Thank you, yeah. brother. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank, Thank you, you, brothers. Yeah. And I'm calling mom. I'm calling her now. <laughs> uh, thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to Cabot Talks. If you liked what you heard, give us a positive review, a thumbs up, a high five, whatever. Leave a comment, share, and subscribe. We're two brothers, two opinions, one California. Cabot Talks. Cabot Talks.